you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Good morning again, City on a Hill. Again, so good to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Uh, It has been a big weekend in the life of our country. I hope, like me, uh, your team won this weekend. The Blues beating the Swans on Friday night. Always a great encouragement. Uh, uh, Today we're going to dive in, as we just had read out for us, to Ezra 7, uh, and also uh, pick up Ezra 8 as well. before we get in to the text today, though, I wanted to, uh, I guess we've, we've introduced the local council today as a, a point of maturity in our church, uh, but there's also other things that, that are kind of indicators of our maturing as a church. I just wanted to speak for a moment about that because we're going to be entering in, in the next couple of months, uh, a, a particular season in our church of thinking about what the Lord would have for us in the few years to come. Uh, in October of this year, our church turns five. Five years old, can you believe it? We are almost in primary school. Uh, And so that has kind of been, obviously our story has been kind of, almost half of it has been in COVID, uh, and and we hope we're we're coming out of that right now. But we come out of COVID also having kind of stepped into a new point of development or maturity as a church. No longer are we kind of that little church plant that's kind of fledgling and and kind of hoping, uh, rather we are now a sustainable and, and established church, which as a church planter in the kind of church planting world, that's, that's, that's like the dream. That's what everybody is praying for in the church planting world. And because we've matured beyond that church plant stage, uh, it's right that we also think that, hey, it's not just about getting kind of the room set up each and every Sunday now. We should be thinking about what God has for us in, in this part of the world, the east and the southeast of Melbourne for the years to come. So we're going to begin this process in the next few months. So I'm calling Build the City. 
just want to leverage off our, our uh, Ezra and Nehemiah series about how we can make the most or the best impact in the east and the southeast of Melbourne. The first stage of this kind of dreaming and planning process is going to kick off next week. Because in God's providence, as we get meet uh, Ezra in chapter 9 and then Nehemiah chapter 1 and, and 2 and 3, uh, we're in this series being led to see that, that God sets his people apart and God builds his people up that they might make a difference as they rebuild Jerusalem. We want to use that to kind of think about our own patch, our own responsibility here, that God wants to set us apart for what he has for us in the years to come. So we're going to take that uh, few texts to kind of shape ourselves, uh, we hope, by God's Spirit, uh, and see what God might have for us. So we're going to start a uh, three-Sunday, two-week season of prayer and fasting, of coming before the Lord, asking Him to do the same in us, that He might set us apart, uh, but also might inspire within us hopes, dreams, plans, ideas, initiatives, uh, not just from me as the pastor, but from us as the people, uh, that all of us might be able to contribute to this. And then the week after that three-Sunday period, which will be Sunday, June 19th, uh, we are going to put it to you uh, in our service to try to hear from you about what ideas and initiatives you have as you look out kind of where our church is at, the opportunities in our suburbs of what are some new missional opportunities, what are some new things we should be investing our resources and our ideas in. So we're going to be asking you to contribute to that as well. So it is an exciting time. Hopefully by the time we come to our fifth birthday, I've got there for a, a few three or four things that we as a church, in addition to knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, uh, in addition to doing the things that are kind of the lifeblood of our church at the moment, services and gospel communities, some of these other few things that God would have us focus on. Does that sound good? Great. Stay tuned for more about that next week. Uh, we're going to dive in now to Ezra chapter 7. So please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for this word from Ezra today. Lord, we pray that as we read about his heart and as we meet him, you might give us as your people a similar heart, that you might give us a similar passion for your word and for your people. And so open our ears to what you want us to want to say to us, open our hearts that we might be changed by you and commit more wholeheartedly to you. Lift up Jesus and having seen him, would we be changed, we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, today we do continue this series, Rebuild. Who's been enjoying the series? We are now one whole month in to this series, and we come to Ezra 7 and 8 today. And if you've been paying attention over this last month, you might have realized something peculiar. That is that we're in this book of Ezra, and we haven't even met Ezra. Where is Ezra? He has not yet come up to our attention. Well, today that changes, because today we have this introduction to the man, Ezra behind the book, Ezra. And as we flip open Ezra 7, the year is now 458 BC. So many decades passed from the very first chapter of Ezra. And Ezra arrives to lead a new wave, a new generation of people who are still in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And the focus of the rest of the book and then into Nehemiah is not so much the work of the people on the buildings, as we've already looked at, but rather the work of building up the people. And that's why Ezra comes in now, because Ezra is a priest, Ezra is a scribe, and he is kind of set apart to rebuild the spiritual life of God's people. 
As a priest, he, he will have been very much a part of the spiritual life of God's people. He would have been sacrificing upon that, that altar that, will have been, that was built in the, the first couple of chapters. As a scribe, Ezra will have been copying out by hand uh, the law of the Lord for his people. Before we dive into what Ezra introduces about himself, let's just take a moment to observe this reality, that we are now a month in, that we are now seven chapters into this book and only just now meeting Ezra, because actually observing that is a key lesson for us as we come to approach how to read the Old Testament. It's very important as a Christian to, to learn how to, how to handle the Old Testament. And often the Old Testament is for us as Christians a bit of a, an enigma. It is bloody it is gory, it is heavy, it can be so historically kind of distant that it feels detached and irrelevant to our lives. One of my most uh, shaping memories as a, as a teenager on my discipleship journey was at the church I was at. Uh, I, I remember seeing a, a woman who couldn't have been a Christian for, for, for very long, just a couple of years, uh, crying. And she was crying because she just realized that Jesus wasn't in the Old Testament. And so sometimes the Old Testament can make you cry. And so we want to learn how to read the Old Testament. What is going on in the Old Testament? What is the purpose of the Old Testament? And that this book is called Ezra, and yet Ezra hasn't shown up yet, is a lesson to us. It's a lesson that the book of Ezra isn't primarily about Ezra. The book of Nehemiah isn't primarily about Nehemiah. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel aren't primarily about Samuel. The book of Job isn't primarily about Job. We could go on and on and on. No, the books of the Old Testament are written so that together... They would tell us a story. They would tell us the meta story of what God has done, having created the world and then yet in response to the sin of his creation, how he has sought to found and form and free a people for himself. And this whole meta story shows us his character, the God's character. And ultimately, he uses people like Ezra and Moses and Abraham. He uses prophecies like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. He uses proverbs of Solomon. He uses promises that are made throughout the story. He uses poets. He uses pictures. He uses precepts, all to craft a story that crescendos in Jesus, God himself coming into the world, fulfilling all those things, all those pictures and all those promises in his own life, death and resurrection. And so whenever we open the Old Testament, it's two-thirds of the Bible, so we're going to open it. I've seen a survey that apparently there's a ratio of one to ten in terms of sermons preached from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But two-thirds of it is the Old Testament. We're going to open it, and whenever we do, we need to keep those things in mind, that meta story in mind, that whenever we're reading anywhere in the Old Testament, we want to find out what is going on here particularly, but also how is here particularly painting that picture of the meta story of what God is doing. This story in Ezra is one mountain peak in a vast mountain range leading to the Everest, that is the life, death and resurrection of King Jesus. And so we're going to do exactly that, I hope, uh, this morning. We're going to dive in to this story, to the life of Ezra and meet Ezra. And what can we glean from him? What can we learn from him as the Old Testament in the New Testament is called an example for us? And yet at the same time, how is what's going on here? Just one, one pearl in the, the great chain of pearls, pearl necklace leading to Jesus. And so let's open up Ezra 7 today and turn with me. We're going to meet Ezra and we meet him in a particular way uh, where he wants us to know that he was the son of 
dot, dot, dot. Let's read it. Verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meraioth, son of Zehariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eliza, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. And so the first thing that Ezra wants us to know about himself is about where he came from. Focus isn't so much on him, but where he came from. He wants us to know that he comes from a long line of a, a spiritual lineage, a spiritual heritage. And it's a line of priests. And you might recognize that, that final name. It, it leads all the way back to kind of the first priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses, famous or perhaps infamous brother of Moses. And so later he gets into a little bit more about himself and his, his character. We're going to hear about the impressiveness of Ezra, but it starts here with where he's come from. It starts in the home. It starts with his family. Now, you and I have, have a tendency, I'm sure, to think that we are self-made and that everything we like to do in, the, in, in our life, we came up with wanting to do it. That, you know, our preferences, our priorities are our own. We, beat, we walk to the beat of our own drum, but we often don't realize that behind us stand a whole lineage, a whole culture, an ecosystem that we were reared in, that has shaped us in all sorts of invisible and sometimes great and sometimes harmful ways. You know, I used to walk in on my dad watching elections on TV, and I used to think to myself, how on earth could adults think that this is a good idea to spend their time? watching this. And I think the same whenever I walked in on him watching golf as well. You know, last night I was checking the golf results while I was watching the election. <laughs> it's also, it's, it's true more seriously as well though. You know, I uh, have the privilege of, of leading a lot of couples in their, in their marriage preparation. And there are thousands and thousands of assumptions that one future spouse will bring in to this new relationship, this marriage, about how they spend their money, how they save their money, about kind of all the little nuances of how they handle the, the household, about communicating and arguing, conflict resolution. And then it clashes with all the other thousands and thousands of assumptions the other partner brings into it as well. And it's also true spiritually. I've heard the stat before that some 90% of Christians have at least one Christian parent. And that highlights, us, highlights to us that, hey, we need to get on with the mission. We need to help spread out the gospel to, to people who have not yet heard about Jesus. But it also highlights to us just how influential the home is, just how influential the family is for making disciples of Jesus. This year, I'm coaching at my son Axel's Auskick every Saturday morning. It's not really coaching, it's more just shouting at the kids to stay in the cones uh, and then doing enough footy stuff that the mums on the sidelines can get a good Instagram shot. Like they, they're all kind of, they get in the way and like, you know, oh, pretend to handball it, you know, pretend, all, all that kind of thing. But you know, it doesn't, kids sport, it, it was just a no-brainer to me. Oh, I was geek, of course, Axel's going to do that, of course. Like, it's just a no-brainer that we would sign our kids up 
to, to learn sport, to develop themselves in those ways. Or perhaps in your family, it's just a no-brainer that you would sign them up for music lessons or maybe for, for extra tutoring or whatever it is. We, we, we do all of this for our kids because it's just in the suburbs, it's a no-brainer. Of course, we would want to look after our kids in those ways. And we often do that but forget that the most influential thing that we can do for our kids is to help them know Jesus and help them trust Jesus, help them go on in that trust of Jesus. I read a tweet once that said, there is a 0.0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. And there is a 100% certainty that your child will one day stand before King Jesus. And so parents in the room, what are you teaching your children? How are you shaping your children? Because you are shaping them. In what direction are you shaping them? Ezra knew the God that his family worshipped. But it's not all positive. Because Ezra's lineage here, it's not that every line was a a complete success and they kind of stood on the shoulders of the, the generation before them. No, we see that Aaron very infamously failed miserably, building a golden calf, leading his whole nation into idolatry. And we should notice that for Ezra and Nehemiah, they're still in Babylon. And so evidently their parents or their grandparents, they weren't a part of that first generation who kind of wholeheartedly, as we heard about in Ezra chapter 1 and 2, were stirred to leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem. Why was that? Perhaps were their parents half-hearted? Were their parents not committed enough? Were they too ingrained in the systems and structures of Babylon? Maybe they were just too busy going to Ozkip. For whatever reason, it's Ezra and Nehemiah, part of their family, who are going to have to step out from Babylon themselves. That's important for us to think about as well, because some of us, as we think about the families we came from, the the lines that we're a part of, we might look back with great gratitude, provided a great legacy for us. And yet others of us might reflect back on the families we were brought up in, the home life we were brought up in, and only have learnings about what not to do. And actually, we might have been very well hurt and harmed by where we came from, things to heal from. And the legacy that we are to set is to actually leave and to change it. But that's what we see in Ezra, that we can change it, that we should change the legacy of our family. In actual fact, Jesus himself in the New Testament, he says, hey, some of you are going to have to leave father, mother, brother, sister for the sake of the gospel. That such should be our commitment to him. That as powerful and as influential as our families are, as our home life is, Jesus is better. Jesus can be more powerful. Jesus can be more influential. And we should leave our biological family for the sake of our commitment to Jesus. And so we have the responsibility of laying the foundations for the next generation. Notice that from these first verses of chapter 7. And whether it's our own kids, or whether it's serving downstairs at at City Kids, or whether it's being a spiritual parent to other spiritual sons and daughters and nephews and nieces by mentoring and by supporting people in their walk with Jesus, we should all think about raising up sons and daughters in the faith. We should all think about raising up the next generation in the faith. Because one day, The kids who are learning about Jesus right now downstairs 
are going to be upstairs. And we want them to be better than us as they replace us. More godly than us as they replace us. We want to sow in to the next generation. And notice what that tells us about God's work in the world. That he's baked this into the way that he works in the world. Often we think that God it kind of just hovers geographically around the world and kind of blesses different parts of the world at, at different times. And, and part of that might be true. Sometimes we might be prone to think that he kind of just follows the elite, he follows the powerful, or he follows the money financially. No, but here we see that primarily God moves generationally, down through the generations. And so it's our responsibility to sow the gospel down to our sons and daughters. Let's hear more about Ezra. Uh, he goes on in, in verse 6. We hear about the hand of God that was upon him. It says this, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now there's something that was very significant about the spiritual nurture Ezra had as a kind of child and a youth, his upbringing. But it's not just spiritual nurture that had brought him to where he was now. We hear now that there was God's hand upon him as well. This is a very significant phrase. Ezra wants us to know this phrase because it comes up six times in Ezra 7 and Ezra 8. In verse 9, we read that the good hand of his God was on him as he set out to take a four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. In verse 28, Ezra acknowledges that he needed a, a kind of a, an extra measure of courage, and he got that courage because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. In chapter 8, verse 18, 22, 31, three times, Ezra confesses that the hand of God was on him in what he was called to do in spiritually reforming God's people. And so what this phrase refers to is his own knowledge, his, his awareness that the power and the blessing of God was being made available, deliberately made available to him to do what he was called to do. God's hand upon him means that God's power was working for him. And so notice again that God isn't some kind of vague force out in the world. No, he's a person with great power. He made the universe with a word. He holds our lives in his hands. He knows everything about us inside and out. He changes seasons. He controls nations and generations. And yet God hasn't just left us to be subject to the laws of physics and the ordinary ongoings around of, of everyday life. No, he offers his power into the world. He offers his power. He can hold his hand over a life and bring favor and blessing that it might flourish. And in Ezra particularly, he, he tells us not just of the power, but why God's hand was upon him. Did you hear Ezra uh, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10? For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
You know, I love God's sovereignty. If you were to ask me, you know, what, what, what's some of the favorite ideas, themes, verses in the Bible, they would all be about how powerful God is. The end of the book of Job, some Psalms that are just incredibly compelling. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. None can stay his hand. I love the feeling and the knowledge and the comfort I get from knowing that God is in charge, that he is in control, that he's infinitely powerful, that he can do whatever he wants when he wants. But here, Ezra includes some reasoning behind why God's hand rested on him, as if to say that we shouldn't just relapse into some kind of lazy complacency because we know, hey, God's in, God's in control, God's in, in charge. No, rather, Ezra was blessed because certain things were true about him. He had agency, and he used his agency in particularly faithful ways that aligned with God's mission in the world. So God placed his hand on his life. We see that God's hand was on him, not because he was such a, a skilled scribe with certain techniques. God's hand wasn't on him because he was just so competent at the things he set his heart, hand to do. No, God's hand was on him because of what his heart was set upon. The good hand of his God was on him for or because Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra's heart was fixated on God's word, centered on God's word. And to want to know someone's word is to want to know them. To want to talk to someone, to want to communicate with someone, to want to hang out with someone, to want to hear more about somebody, is to want to know them. And Ezra's here word-centered because his heart is centered on God. He wants to know God. See, it's not just that Ezra kind of loved studying, he was a bookworm and he just loved to think about theology you know, in our tribe of the church, we love to study the Bible. But more than mere study, what we see about Ezra is that he didn't just want to study the Word. His heart was set also to do it. He wanted to, to do it. I love those few words. Ezra was there to do the Word of God. There's a story in the Gospels that, that Jesus tells right at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, where he contrasts uh, the wise and the foolish. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So from that story, what's the difference between the wise person and the foolish person, between the wise way of living and the foolish way of living? It's not that one hears God's Word and the other doesn't. They both hear God's Word. It's not that one has harder times and the other doesn't. They both were impacted by the storm. Now, the big difference is that the wise hear God's Word and do it. Whoever hears my words and does them. And so some of us 
should repent of loving God's word just enough. Just enough so that we might look down on others who don't have a similar kind of authority put upon God's word in their life. Just enough to kind of scoff at people who have their theology still being sorted out. Just enough to kind of lift our nose at those liberals who are, who are kind of rejecting God's word in embrace of the culture. But not enough to do it. Not enough to live it. Not enough to join in with Ezra, to be someone whose heart is set upon God's word, but also to do it. You see, God hasn't given us the Bible as, as, as a textbook to merely study, but also as a handbook to live out, a mirror that we might see ourselves in it, see our falling short in light of his standard, in light of his word, and run to him, go to him. The Bible is God's arms out to the world to come and know me, come and be with me, come and be reconciled to me through this message in the scriptures, this message of my son, Jesus. And so Ezra was a man of character who was about God's word. But it doesn't even stop there. Because even more than that, he wasn't just a man who was about God's word to study it and to do it. Ezra wanted to teach others as well. Did you notice that he wanted to teach people the laws and the statutes? And sometimes we can think that we can't help others till we know enough. That we can't help others till we have kind of matured enough, that our lives are sorted out enough, till we become that theoretical kind of person that we hope to become in the future where we're wise and mature and we're a bit of a, a, a sage. And for sure, we, we, we should be working on our character as our hearts are set on God and His Word. And, and Paul tells Timothy in the New Testament, hey, hey mate, you need, you need to work on your character if you want to be a vessel fit for honorable use. But part of our character is our love of others, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so part of our character, to, to be a vessel fit for honorable use, is, is wanting to share in this heart of Ezra to, to have others learn and know what we know, to build them up, to multiply the good news that has been such good news for us, and we know it will be good news for all people. And so Ezra was, was wholehearted, set upon God's word, that he was actually obedient to it, to do it, and he invested in others. And so from Ezra's life, we hear this, this challenging question, do we want God's hand to be upon us? And if yes, do we want to share in the heart that Ezra has? A heart for God and his word, a heart to do God's word in our lives, a heart for others to know this God and to follow him alongside us. And so this blessing and power, this hand of God upon Ezra, which rested over him, we read, uh, we, we won't get into it now, we, we won't have time, but we read that it actually had very practical outcomes in that the king, as we're told, Artaxerxes, wrote a letter for Ezra, and it's an incredible letter for a pagan king to write to this man, Ezra. Because he essentially says that, hey, Ezra, you can take as many people as you want. Whoever wants to go with you can go back to Jerusalem and you can take as much stuff as you need. Whatever gold, anything out of the treasury, whatever you want, whatever you need, it's yours, Ezra. You go and you take it. 
And here is a great example of God's favor, God's power resting upon Ezra, that God is so powerful that he can change the decisions of kings, he can change the letters of kings, that he might work, even unknowingly perhaps, in light with God's mission. And it reminds us that God's hand isn't just on Ezra, but God's hand through Artaxerxes is working on this meta-story, is working on this pathway to Jesus. And so let's uh, land the plane by turning to how the Old Testament and this particular story points us to Jesus. Because here we're pointed to Jesus, who's not just the son of dot, 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 but the son of God himself. See, Ezra had the hand of God upon him for his favor. And I think there's something we can learn there about us as well. Walking in line with with God's will in our lives. But we need to notice why that could be possible. Why it could be possible for Ezra, why it could be possible for you and for me. Because apart from Jesus, God's hand resting upon us is bad news. Because apart from Jesus, you and I have run from God. You and I are living life and have lived our lives our own way. You and I have have sinned and rebelled and turned away. And so God's hand being upon us, apart from Jesus, would be rightly upon us in His justice to bring wrath, to bring condemnation, to give us what we deserve and, and indeed what our hearts are set upon, what we want apart from Jesus is not God. But this story of Ezra points us to how we might be able to come to Jesus. Because yes, there are similarities between Ezra and Jesus. Just like Ezra, we get a a, a kind of biographical account of Jesus' lineage. And it's actually connected to this story because we we read about uh, in in the book of Matthew in Jesus' lineage, Zerubbabel, who we've met already, is there, the foreman, the Scotty Cam of the great working uh, kind of party that was sent to build the temple. And in the midst of Jesus' lineage, there's some successes or some failures, some godliness and and ungodliness, and all a shaping influence on the humanity of Jesus. And there's some other similarities. We know that Ezra was a priest. He will have sacrificed on behalf of the people. And, And Jesus, as he began his ministry, was a priest. As Ezra focused on the spiritual building up, of God's people, we know that uh, Jesus came, that he might draw a people to himself, set us apart and build us up, that he calls us, and this is where we get our name, he calls us, the city on hill, he calls us to who we're called to be, who he wants us to be, who he envisions us to be. But there's also some key differences between Ezra and Jesus. Ezra, as a priest, sacrificed on behalf of the people, but Jesus is the great high priest the one who didn't sacrifice on behalf of others, but sacrificed himself for others. The one who had lived a perfect life without sin. The one who had preached and studied God's word and then taught it perfectly to others and continued thousands of years later to be teaching it even to us today. This Jesus would lay down that perfect life for us in our place, the sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice for us in our place. While Ezra was walking only in a human line, Jesus would come and at his baptism have the Father 
call out in front of everybody, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. See, Jesus wasn't merely human, but Jesus could be that great high priest. Jesus could be that sacrifice for us because he perfectly represented us as Ezra represents his people. And yet he also represents God coming and paying the penalty of that justice, that wrath, that condemnation that would be upon us if God's hand was upon us apart from Christ. It came down and rested upon Jesus in our place. And so the story of Ezra points us to this great story, this grand story of a people being formed, a people being built up, a people being called, not to a great building project, but to the great building project of the church, of the body of Christ, of people who have been purified. Christ died for the church and gave himself up for her. And so because of Jesus, when we look at Ezra's life, we read, oh man, this guy's heart looked to be in the right place, set upon God's word. And yet when we look at ourselves, we fall so far short. Yet because of Jesus, it doesn't matter how we've gone in setting our heart upon God and upon his word. Jesus lived the perfect life in your place. It doesn't matter how in, in the past, how we've, we've failed to apply God's word in our lives, to obey him, to do it. It doesn't matter how we're going to fail to do that in the future, and we will. Jesus has lived the perfect life in your place. Jesus has died for your sin. Jesus has risen for your salvation. Jesus has conquered your death. Jesus offers you now new life in him. And Jesus offers us something more than uh, what the Old Testament calls just the hand of God upon a life. And by Jesus' ascension, do you remember what he said to the disciples before he ascended back to the Father? He said, wait here and you will receive my power when it comes upon you to be my witnesses. And so if you're in Jesus, you don't just have God's hand upon you. You have God's Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit empowering you study God's Word, to set your heart upon God's Word and to do it. And so yes, your your life and your agency and your faithfulness matters. We need to hear God's Word and to do it. And yet, every failure can be replaced with Christ's righteousness. Every failure can be forgotten and we can be empowered to go after Jesus wholeheartedly, to go into His Word wholeheartedly, to do it and to teach others. And so perhaps you're here and you're, you're a Christian and yet you feel like you're kind of you're a half-hearted Christian. You, you, perhaps sometimes during the week, sometimes during the month, you're begrudgingly kind of opening God's Word, looking for, you know, what am I going to get out of this? I kind of feel like I'm obligated to do this. I don't know if I'm going to kind of get any meat here. Perhaps you're neglecting to, to practice what you know to be true in God's Word. Perhaps you're holding back the good news from others out of fear or wanting to stay comfortable that the Holy Spirit would be in us, that the Spirit of Christ would be in us, is God telling us, hey, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. Jesus, through His Spirit, can empower us to walk in His fullness, to walk knowing that God is for us, God is with us, God's hand is upon us. And so take heed of God's Word to you today. There's a few things to think about from these couple of chapters. 
Think about the next generation. Are you working to pass on God's word to them? Think about what your heart is set upon. Do you desire, do you want to know God and to obey his word? And think about Jesus. Have you received the gift of his grace, the gift of his mercy, the offer that goes out to you to come and trust in Jesus, to receive his Holy Spirit and be empowered to follow, to trust and to keep persevering in him? I'm going to finish by praying that we might be a people, that we can say yes to all of those questions. And we need God's help to do it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the great I am. You are the beginning and the end. You are the alpha and the omega. And as evidence of your great power, Lord, you have been working in history from the first day all down through to Ezra's day and all the way to today. Lord, we pray that we would be so conscious of your power, so conscious of your, your work in the world, that we would see back thousands of years into this story and see your hand at work and see your guidance of your people, your guidance even of pagan kings to set about your will so that you might bring about a people who would then establish a place where your son could come in and before them and the world live the perfect life, die a sacrificial death and then rise again. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the life of Ezra, but we thank you even more for it because it paints a picture of the Jesus to come. The one who now has come and lived for us, died for us, and risen again. Lord, help us today by your Holy Spirit to trust in him because we confess that in and of ourselves we are half-hearted, we are begrudging, but we are people who are so prone to hear your word and not to do it. We are so prone to hear your word and to, to not share it and, and teach it and, and pass it on. Lord, we need your help. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. That even more than that, apart from you, we deserve wrath and condemnation. And yet, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that in you, you have come. That in you, you replace that wrath and condemnation with grace and mercy, with forgiveness and adoption into your family. And so we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to come upon us Fill us afresh this morning, we pray, that we might be people who are wholehearted in setting our hearts upon your word because we want to know you. People that are wholehearted in setting our hearts upon wanting to do your word. Because we want to listen and obey you. And we want to share it. We want to multiply it. We want to invest in others. And so help us be that kind of people that you're calling us to be, the people that we truly are in Christ and not the people that we sometimes lean back upon in our flesh. Lord, help us. We need you. Bless us, we pray. It's in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, friends, let's stand and sing in response to God's word. Uh, and may, by God's spirit, as we sing, this be a moment where God refills us and refreshes us in him. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.